Take your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 10, if you will. Nehemiah chapter 10, as we continue our verse-by-verse study through this book. And as we get to this passage of Scripture, we're going to see what God has in store for us. Let me remove some of the things right here. By the way, I asked this morning for people to sign up for the Lord's Army. Uh, we need about 100 people to make uh, Vacation Bible School work. We'll have hundreds of kids that come and be a part of that. And I notice there's probably five or six of these sheets already filled up. I hope you'll continue to put your name down and volunteer. And you might even know which area you would like to serve in. So uh, that would be a great blessing as well. Nehemiah chapter 10, and we're starting in verse 28. If you, if you uh, look at the first 27 verses, you're going to find that it's full of many different names. And I thought about having Brother Vestal preach on those, um, but I decided uh, in, in, in kindness to him we would skip over uh, murdering the, the names of all of these Wonderful people mentioned in the first 27 verses of the book of Nehemiah. So we come down to the end of the chapter 10, and we find that Nehemiah is setting the people uh, and, and setting things straight. In fact, the title of this message coming from this passage of Scripture is, Some Things Need to Be Settled. Some things need to be settled, and so it is in the Christian life. Uh, you, you cannot haphazardly grow in the Christian life. You can't just, you know, read your Bible and then maybe a week later read some more, and then maybe a few days later read a passage. And then, no, you you got to have some consistency if you're going to build up your faith. The Bible says to build up our most precious faith. Now, that, that faith, that salvation comes from Jesus, but you growing in the faith, uh, that's up to you. Grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and there's some things you've got to settle. Uh, my mother and my father were not churchgoers when I was a young boy. But when I was around uh, seven years of age, they got right with God. Now, they grew up, and as, uh, as um, teenagers had trusted Christ as their Savior, my father got in military, drifted from the Lord. Uh, my mother married my father, who was drifting from the Lord. And, uh, but he got right with God. And my mom and dad, when I was seven years old, made a decision, we are going to church every time the doors are open. I mean, every time the doors are open, we're going to be there. In fact, we came sometimes with the key to open the door. Uh, and we were there most of the time. We mowed the yard. We cleaned the floors. We worked in the kitchen. Uh, we did most anything and everything you could possibly imagine except preach at the church. Our pastor did that. And we volunteered. I often said we could have saved rent by living there. We were there most of the time. But it didn't hurt our family. It helped our family. My brother, my two sisters know Christ. Their children know Christ. Their grandchildren know Christ. If you want to build a godly heritage, 
And let me just say this. If you're going to build a godly heritage, you won't do it on the baseball field. You won't do it on the football field. You won't do it on the soccer field. Uh, you know, learn sports. That's a good, sports has its place. But most people leading those sports are not the most godly people you can find in society. And when I grew up in high school, secular, I didn't know many Christians that played sports on the teams. They were not known for their godly leadership in the school. Let me just say it that way. But growing up in church and being there faithful and having settled that, we never questioned on Sunday morning where we're going to go. Are we going to go to church today or not? No, it, it never was a question. My parents settled that. Nehemiah is speaking to the people here and he's letting them know there's some things that need to be settled. Uh, we, we've rebuilt the temple. Uh, we've got the priests there. We've rebuilt the walls. But if we are going to continue as God's people, there's some things we've got to settle. And in this passage, he's going to tell them exactly what needs to be settled. And so we're going to go with that. So I'm going to ask that you remain seated. Usually I ask you to stand as we read this passage of Scripture. But it is a longer passage, and I want to take my time reading through it because I want to sort of read and then point out some things that we're reading. So starting at verse, well, let's go to Lord in prayer, and then we'll start out reading his word. Let's start with prayer. Heavenly Father... Lord, as we come into your word, we come with a hungry heart. We want to know what thus saith the Lord. We want to know what you've told us in your word. Lord, you were speaking through Nehemiah to the people of Israel. But Lord, we're your people too, by faith in Christ. And so this is a message for us as well. And Lord, I pray that we'll have open hearts. We pray that the Holy Spirit of God would speak to each one of us, Lord, that we could see our individual need. And Lord, if there's any area that we need to settle, may we decide as your children, we're going to settle that for Christ's sake. And Lord, I pray you'll bless as we look at your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we start in verse 28, and follow along as I read. You can see it on the screen, or you'll have it in your Bible. And the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the porters, the singers, the Nephinims, and all they that had separated themselves from the people of the lands unto the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, everyone having knowledge and having understanding. In other words, Whole families gathered together. Whole families. Last Wednesday night, we had a guest speaker, and he talked about when he got saved, he wanted his family to come to Christ. And he started sharing his faith with his family. And by God's grace, he saw his brothers, and he saw his mother and his father come to faith in Christ. And now 
He has aunts and uncles and brothers and all sorts of relatives who attend his church that he pastors because he had a burden to see his own family come to faith in Christ. May I say, you've got to have some things in place if you're going to build a family that is going to keep on following the Lord. And the Bible says, everyone having understanding, what that simply means is everyone who is old enough. So I think there might have still been, I don't think they had a nursery, but, but mama had the baby. And, uh, but everyone else was listening. They wanted to hear what God had to say to his people. In verse 29, they clave to their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and made an oath to walk in God's law which was given by Moses, the servant of God, to observe and do all uh, the commandments of the Lord our God and his judgments and statutes. So they said, we're we're in this thing. We're going to follow God. And whatever he says, we're going to do. Boy, that's good advice, isn't it? I love that advice that the mother of Jesus gave to the servant at the wedding of Cana of Galilee, she said to the servants, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And that's good advice for all of us as believers. Whatever God's word says, let's just do it. And verse 30, and that we would not give our daughters unto the people of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. Now, God told them to be a separate people. And you understand as believers, God's also told us to be a separate people. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. Come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord. So our lives are based on a different moral code, and that is the Word of God. Not what society says, but what does God's Word say He wants us to do, and how does God's Word tell us how to live? And that's what we choose to do. And verse 31, And if the people of the land bring ware or any victuals on the Sabbath day or sell, that we would not buy it of them on the Sabbath or on the holy day, and that we would leave the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Now, they're making a pledge and they're saying, we're not going to buy and sell on Sunday. And if people come to our city, Jerusalem, and they have wares for sale, we are not going to buy them on the Sabbath. And he also makes mention of the fact that every seventh year, they would do away with every debt. Now, that was an Old Testament law. You do away with the debt. And then you had the year of Jubilee where you gave back the land. If someone had purchased the land from a family on the year of Jubilee, they had to give that back. So they could not buy land permanently from another family Because God said to keep the land in the families. Now, on the seventh year, not only did they give the debts, 
you recall that God's Word says you are also to let the fields lay vacant for the seventh year. You farm for six years, you leave the soil the same, you just let it grow over and you let the land heal for the seventh year and you start farming the eighth. Now Israel had not done that. And you're going to find that when God took Israel into Babylonian captivity for 70 years, God is very distinct on why he chose the year 70. Why are you going into bondage for 70 years in Babylon? And the Bible tells us because they had neglected the Sabbath year every seven years for 490 years. They had not stopped farming every seventh year. And so God said, I'm going to fix that. I'm going to take everyone out of Israel, put them in bondage for 70 years, and now the land's going to grow over for 70 years because I will have my people keep my word. Now, that sort of lets you know God's pretty serious about things when he tells us things. Amen? I mean, he means what he says, and he says what he means. In verse 32, also we made ordinances for us to charge ourselves yearly with the third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. We made up our mind and we decided among ourselves, he says, that we are putting a shekel here. Uh, he says specifically a third part of a shekel and we're all going to do that per person, per family, so if the family had five, it was a third of a shekel times five. If they had ten, same thing, times ten. If it was just a young couple, times two. Now that was for the maintenance of the temple that was just rebuilt. But that was God's plan way back before there ever was a temple. That was God's plan when there was only a tabernacle, a tent in the wilderness. And the Bible says in verse 33... For the showbread and for the continual meat offering, for the continual burnt offerings of the Sabbaths, of the new moons, for the set feast, and for the holy things, and for the sin offerings, to make an atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. So in other words, they funded God's house to take care of all the special meetings that God had told them to do, the priests and the Levites to do in the temple. And in verse 34, and we cast lots among the priests, the Levites, and the people for the wood offering to bring it unto the house of our God and for the houses of our fathers at times appointed by year to burn upon the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. Uh, if I had time to go in this, I could show you many different passages, but what it's saying here is the priests would gather together and cast lots. Now, to cast lots was trying to figure out 
where God wanted them to serve. (coughs) And the Bible is going to say in the Old Testament and also in the days of the New Testament, Zechariah, you know, the husband of Elizabeth, who was the father of John the Baptist, uh, the Bible says it was his time to serve. And it was his time based on lots. They chose a lot, and he, cho- he was chose to serve in the temple when the angel spoke to him about having a son. The priests were divided up into 24 courses. So out of the thousands of priests, every one of them was in one of the 24 teams, if you will. If you go, uh, for instance, to the fire department, you're going to find that there's usually three or four teams of men and women who are firefighters and they serve for like 24 hours or several days in a row and they actually live there. And, and then there comes in another group that takes over and then another group that takes over And so that it's man 24 hours a day, there's about four teams a week that keep rotating to make sure that someone is in there because they have things to cook. You got to have a cook. Uh, You got to clean. You got to take care of the equipment. You got to be ready to go fight fires. And so it takes all those people and they rotate like that to make sure that at any time, night or day, they're ready to go if a call comes in. Well, that's the same thing with the house of God, the priest. And so they had all of them get together in 24 courses and they would call them out of all of Israel because they did not all live in Jerusalem. But the ones who were serving would come to live in Jerusalem during their service. And they would serve for a set number of days and weeks and then they would go home to their home city, and then others would be constantly going and going. Uh, One of the sports I know very little about is ice hockey. Uh, I've watched it on TV and uh, didn't quite understand it. To watch it on TV is one thing. To watch it in person is another thing. And one thing you see when you watch in person is how often they trade places. They'll say, oh, he's been playing a long time. He's in there for two and a half minutes. And I'm thinking, two and a half minutes? But, but they get out of breath. They're working so hard. And so there's people in this area, and they're constantly, constantly bringing in more people. Just like in soccer, constantly rotating your, so that you have fresh legs and fresh lungs. Well, that's the same things the priests did of Israel. They were in constant rotation with 24 different sections of priests. And out of those sections, you would cast lots to determine which priest served in which place. And that's how they determined it. And that's what it's referencing in verse 34 when it says, and we cast lots among the priests, the Levites, the people for the wood offering. It it gave them different assignments, if you will. And verse 35, and to bring the first fruits of all our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of all trees year by year into the house of the Lord. So the people got together and said, listen, we're going to take the first of our orchard. We're going to take the first of our field. And by, by its definition, it's talking about the tithe. 
And as we've said before, the tithe is not just the tenth, it's the first tenth. That's why it's called the first fruits. It takes faith to give the first tenth. And you trust God for the rest. And that's what they were doing with their fruit and with their fields. And so in verse 36, it says, also the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstlings of our herds and of our flocks to bring to the house of our God and to the priests that minister in the house of our God. Now, you'll read in the book of Leviticus that they could redeem their children, but the first of every family belonged to God. But you had to redeem that. And so you paid a price so you didn't literally give your son to the temple. But when it came to animals, you could not redeem them. And the Bible says that everything that passed under the rod, the tenth, was holy unto the Lord. And so what that meant is you'd line up your animals and you'd have a rod and you'd count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. That, that one belongs to God. One, two, three, four, ten. That one belongs to God. Well, while you're counting them, you're looking and out of your peripheral vision, you see your prize bull. <laughs> and you're going, oh, wait a minute, how's this count going? One, two, and... Uh, and then that prize bull is 10, but you couldn't redeem him. And you couldn't shift orders. And you couldn't say, I'm going to put the sickly on the 10th and I'm going to put the best on the first nine. No, no. Whatever it fell on, that was God. And when it fell on an animal, it was committed to destruction. That animal was going to die in an offering made to God by the priest and the Levites. Now, God meant for that to be the chief way of sustaining his people, the Levites. Remember, he said that one out of every ten belongs to me, so rather than take every son... What I'm going to do is I'm going to take a whole tribe. And the tribe will be the tribe of Levites. And so in the book of Numbers, it will number them all. And you're going to find out that the Levites were about 1,250 short, I believe, in uh, fulfilling one per for every man in all of Israel. And so for the rest of it, the, the nation of Israel had to pay, pay five shekels per person to the temple to make up for the men did not, did not, that were not in the tribe of Levite. So God chose a tribe instead of individual people. But you still had to bring your son to the temple for an offering and to give an offering. Even Jesus on the eighth day, you recall, he was taken to the temple. And so all of this is spelled out in the scripture. And so Nehemiah is, he's not going through every detail that's found in the book of Leviticus. You can read that. And these people had probably not been hearing that for 70 years. But he's giving them 
a, a condensed version, if you will, of what God told Moses to do and Moses to tell the children of Israel. And so he brings them to the house of God in verse 37, that we should bring the first fruits of our dough and our offerings and the fruit of all manner of trees and of wine and of oil unto the priest and to the chambers of the house of our God and the tithes of our ground unto the Levites, that the same Levites might have the tithes and all the cities of our tillage. So you remember the Levites were a group of people who did not have land. And the Bible says that's because God said, I am your inheritance. And praise God, he is our inheritance too. God is our inheritance. So they didn't have land. They weren't farmers. If they farmed, it was on someone else's land. And so the people of God would collect a tenth of all that God had blessed them and come and give that to the house of God. And from the house of God, that would be distributed through the priests and the Levites to all the families of the Levites because all of them were God's people. God chose that one tribe to be the people that God took care of and God took care of them through the tithes and the offerings of God's people. Now, in the New Testament, it says, they that preach the gospel should live of the gospel. It's the same principle. If you're going to serve God full time, then God's going to take care of you with God's people. And that's why we as a church take tithes and offerings. There's nowhere in Scripture where we're uh, picking up tithes and offerings to pay utility bills and buy land and do this and that. And practically we do that because we meet in buildings. But the primary essence of it all is to take care of the men that God has chosen. And if you'll take the same pattern in the New Testament as in the Old Testament, the pattern of the Old Testament was that one man out of ten out of all of Israel, was going to be in the tribe of Levi, was going to be a priest unto God. And so it should be, even I believe today, we should have more and more young men stepping up and saying, I feel like God's called me into ministry. It shouldn't be one out of a hundred. It shouldn't be one out of a thousand. There should be a lot of young men who thinks, I, I want to be a missionary. I, I want to be a pastor. I, I want to be a youth pastor. I want to I serve God with my life. Because I believe that God has a call on a man's life. And I believe there's far more people that God is calling than have ever answered. Now, if you don't think that's true, let me just say, I've put it to the test before. I've met with men where we had several hundred men before, and I've asked this question, how many men, laymen that are here today, would say, at one point in your life, you felt 
like God was calling you to possibly be a pastor or a missionary or a youth pastor or something, but he was calling you into some type of full-time Christian service, you'd be surprised over half the men would raise their hand. Yes, I've God dealt with me like that when I was young. God dealt with me when I was in college. God, God dealt with me. Uh, now, I never did it, but I, I, there was a time in my life where that's what I felt. The problem is not that God is not calling. The problem is we're not answering yes. We're living for things. Instead of the creator who owns all things. If you had the privilege to be a good friend to someone like Bill Gates who owns Microsoft. Or someone who owns Amazon. Or someone who owns some other great company in our in our country, and someone allowed you to go to special meetings where actually you could rub shoulders and you could be friends with billionaires of our country, would you say, no, I don't think I want to do that? You say, well, I might do it, maybe, I don't know, might, I might, I, he might want me in his business or something. But let me tell you this. There's a God who owns everything. And you can get close to the God who owns everything. Not just millions, not just billions, not just trillions, but he owns the universe. And you and I can get close to him. And and there's nothing greater than giving your life to full-time Christian service and say, Lord, I want my life to count for you and for eternity. Now, I really believe that every layman, no matter where you work, you, you ought to be that committed to God, even if you work in a factory or own a business or whatever, that's fine. But I do believe that there ought to be more and more young men step up and say, I feel the call of God on my life. Because the Old Testament pattern is one out of ten. Now, they came short of getting that. But in New Testament times, we come way short of getting that. And he goes and says in verse 38, And the priests, the sons of Aaron, shall be with the Levites, when the Levites shall take tithes, and the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes unto the house of our God, to the chambers, unto the treasure house. Now, let me explain that. So God's people gave tithes, and that came to the Levites, and it was all dispersed to them. But the Bible says the Levites took the tithe of the tithes. So if you're a preacher... You tithe too. If you serve God, you should be a tither. How could you be serving God and not be a tither when you live off the tithes of God's people? Be a tither. And so that's what he's saying. The Levites would bring their tithes to Jerusalem and put it in the treasure house that were built right beside the temple. 
And that's where the treasures of God would be kept, right beside the temple. And that was not brought by the people. That was brought because the people brought tithes to God's people. And then God's people, the Levites and priests, they brought their tithe to the temple and it was stored in the treasure houses. And that was for God's people in future days. It was for what God planned in future days. And so it's amazing to see how Nehemiah is sharing with the people God's plan. And then we come down to verse 39. For the children of Israel and the children of Levi shall bring the offering of the corn of the new wine and the oil unto the chambers where are the vessels of the sanctuary and the priests that minister and the porters and the singers and we will not forsake the house of our God. Oh, that's pretty good, isn't it? We will not forsake the house of our God. That's good. But notice when it talks about Levites, they weren't all preachers. There were porters. Now, porters are the people who took care of the house of God. They're the ones who move things around. You know, if your church grows, after a while, you've got to hire some people to sort of fix things around the house of God. But that's an important position. And then it says the singers. You've got to have people, leads people in singing. You've got to have people who organize, orchestrate. I'm glad it's not me. It would sound terrible. But you've got to have people who know how to sing and can lead a group for God's praises. And we will not forsake the house of our God. Now, as I mentioned before, in this passage, he's saying some things need to be settled. And I'm going to sum up those things very quickly for us and talk about how it should apply perhaps to our lives as well. We should settle some things. And one thing we ought to settle is not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That's what the Bible says in verse 28 and uh, 29 and verse 30. We will not give our sons and daughters to the people of this land. We will not take their sons and daughters and put them in our families. We are going to separate ourselves. And the Bible says it this way in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 14. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness? We are not to uh, marry those who are unbelievers. Now, if if they're both unbelievers and one gets saved, then you just got to stay there and pray and do your best to lead that partner to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But as young people, you do not date unbelievers. And I would go a step further. As a believer, I would not date someone who's not sold out to Jesus. Amen. He could say, well, I, you know, I've trusted Jesus as my Savior. Wonderful. But does your life reflect that? I mean, do you go to church? Are you faithful? Do you serve God? Is your life different? Do you live according to what the Word of God tells us to live? Because we're wanting a godly person. Listen, uh, single ladies... Something you need to learn is you marry a man hoping to change him, but that never happens. That never happens. I heard it said uh, a week ago, someone said, 
a, a woman marries a man thinking, I'll change her. A man marries a woman thinking, she'll never change. Good luck with both of those, right? We do change. But men seldom change. And you usually don't turn them around and turn their heart toward the Lord just because you decide to date them. Uh, you want to, if you want a, a life full of problems, then be unequally yoked together. Because you're going to have a hard time plowing a field when you've got one animal wants to go this way and one wants to go this way. And your field's going to be zigzagged all over. If you're going to go straight for God, you better find someone who knows Jesus going in the same direction. And that's what you want to find. Not be unequally yoked together. I would suggest not in marriage, certainly, because the text talks about that. But I wouldn't do that in business. If you're a Christian business, don't be unequally yoked together in partnerships where one is saved and one is not. You're going to find you want different things in life. And don't get unequally yoked together in friendships. Well, my best friend is not a believer, but we just love each other. Well, let, let me just say, your best friends ought to be believers. I'm not saying don't be friendly to those who are without, those who are not lost. We want to be friendly to try to lead them to a saving knowledge of Christ. But they should never be your best friends because, honestly, they're going to pull you away. And it's so much easier to pull someone down than it is to pull someone up. So much easier. Uh, Paul, could I use you a minute? Come up here a minute. And would you just grab my hand? And let me just ask, which is easier for me to pull him up or him to pull me down? <laughs> I weigh more than this young man. He's as thick as this. No, <laughs> he's as thick as this leg almost. Uh, but he can easily more pull me down than I can pull him up. But if you want to reach someone for Christ, you take them to church. And when you take them to church, you have your pastor pulling, your youth pastor pulling, your godly friends pulling. After you get a dozen people pulling, it's easier to pull him up to Jesus, you see. But it's so difficult to do it yourself. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate that. It is so difficult. Uh, you say, well, I'm taking them on as a project. Well, you're going to find you're the devil's project, and he's going to try to pull you down. You don't be unequally yoked together. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. And that communication means livelihoods and, and friendships uh, corrupt good manners. You, you get in the wrong place, it's easy to get pulled down. Iron sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend, Proverbs 27, 17. Psalms 1, 1, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Uh, you, you just got to watch your close friends. Don't be unequally yoked together. So the first thing settled is don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. The second thing we need to settle, as according to this passage, is honor God's day. Honor God's day. Now, I grew up in the South. Uh, I was born in North Carolina. I was raised up in Tennessee, Texas, Germany, 
Uh, my father's in military all over, but usually central Tennessee. In the South, when I grew up, they had what's called blue laws. Blue laws. You ever heard of that? I mean, most of the older people have. Blue laws meant that you could not buy or sell on Sunday. You couldn't get gas on Sunday. The grocery store was not open on Sunday. There was no malls back then, but if there were, they were not open on Sunday. That was what blue laws was. And it was, it was Christians in the South that said, we want to honor God. We want to honor God's day. By the way, you never played baseball. You never had soccer. You never had Little League. You never had sports on Sunday. You didn't have that. What'd you do? You went to church. You would see whole families going to church on Sunday. And that's what they did. Uh, The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together in the manner as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We are not to neglect the assembling of ourselves together. And by the way, that's the word church. The Greek word ekklesia, it means the assembly. We are a church because we gather to gather. Gather to gather. And that makes us a church. We're called out from all the places we live to meet together to worship God as brothers and sisters in Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, it says, Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God hath prospered him, that there be no gathering when I come. This is talking about the offering, but it talks about the first day of the week. That's Sunday. The Sunday is not a Sabbath. The Sabbath is on Saturday. Sabbath is the sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. That's the Sabbath, that section of time, 24-hour period of time. We do not worship on the Sabbath. We worship on Sunday. Why Sunday? Well, because that's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. So every time Christians gather together on Sunday, it is a celebration of his resurrection. We are here for him. And he meets with us. Wherever two or three are gathered together, there am I in the midst, right? We, we, meet, we meet together, but Jesus meets with us. Go to church on Sunday. Make Sunday a day you set apart from the rest. God's day is not a matter of a law to observe, but a day to set apart for God. It's not, it's not like, well, you know, you're not supposed, no, you want to set it aside for God. It's not because we're made to, it's not because there's New Testament law that says this or that. It's because when we love God, we want to honor him. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God knew we needed a day of rest. And in that day of rest, he wanted us to worship him. Then the third thing, settle this, honor God's house. And in verses 32 through the end of the chapter, 39, he's talking about giving the tithes and offerings to God's people. Malachi chapter 3, verse 8, 9, and 10 
says this, Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, Wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. Ye are cursed with a curse. For ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house. And I love this phrase. Prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts. God says, listen, when it comes to this area of giving your tithes and offerings, put me to the test. See if I don't keep my word, God saying. See if I will not honor my word. If I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive. Now, these people had neglected God's house, and now they start again. They've rebuilt the temple. They've reestablished the worship. They've rebuilt the walls. And now they've gathered all the people together. And they say, now, before we go further, there's some things we need to just settle We're not going to give our children to unbelievers and have them intermarry. We're not going to do that. Secondly, he says, we're going to honor God's house. And we're not going to be buying and selling on the Sabbath. We're not going to do that. And thirdly, he says, and we're going to bring the tithe to God's house because these priests are God's people. And we're going to take care of them. Because they're God-called people. And that's our job. And Nehemiah's not a priest, so he's not saying, give to me. He's saying, I'm speaking for God here. And this is what we have to do. And so they started setting things in order. Now, we're going to see as we continue on in Nehemiah that having set things in order, he goes back and visits the king. And when he comes back, he finds, as is human nature, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. They've drifted. So what does he do? He puts it straight again. And in God's work, we have to make it straight again and again and again and again and again because we're all just sinners saved by grace and none of us are perfect. And sometimes the preacher has to preach to himself and sometimes the teacher has to teach to themselves. We have to constantly put the flesh back in place so we can keep serving God. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Let God speak to your heart about the message and what God has perhaps said to you. Heavenly Father, I pray as we look to you at this time, we're conscious of what you've said to your people so many years ago in Jerusalem. And I pray that we'll all find practical application in our lives even this day. 
Lord, how you want our lives to live. You want us to be tied into the church. You want us to set your day apart. You want us to give out of what you've given to us, dear Lord. And Father, we're glad to do so and we're honored to do so. And Father, would you bless your people. And Lord, if there's someone watching online that has never trusted Christ as their personal Savior, I pray that even tonight they would ask Jesus Christ to be their Savior. They would acknowledge their sin, their need of a Savior. And they would humbly ask Jesus to forgive them. And they would trust him by faith to be their Savior. And Lord, just that quickly you would receive them as a child of yours if they would accept your Son. So use us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet. The piano's playing. If there's a spiritual decision you have and something you want to pray about, you can come to an old-fashioned altar. You can talk to the Lord about your life, about what God's trying to do in your heart. There may be some young man that God's speaking to about being a preacher, being a pastor, being in full-time Christian service. I think occasionally from time to time we see young men that God is doing something with. And if God's calling you, you've got to answer. And I hope that answer is yes, Lord. just spend a little time in prayer. Let God speak to your heart. God bless you. It's so good to have each one of you here with us. I want to let you know how much I love and appreciate each and every one of you. What a joy it is to pastor Grandview Baptist Church. It's been such a wonderful journey all these 38 years, close to 38. And I so appreciate each and every one of you. I love you. Be much in prayer. Several of our people are going through stages of cancer treatment. And I pray you'll hold them up in prayer and love on them as you have opportunity. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer as we dismiss our service. Father, thank you for this time we have. I pray, dear Lord, that you will send us forth with your blessing now. In Jesus' name, amen. We did not watch the next video, but we're dismissed. God bless you.